Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice, Buck Sexton. I'm here today to announce that the program known as DACA that was effectuated under the Obama administration is being rescinded. Jeff Sessions there, uh... Still, still a little bit of my thunder, Team Buck. Welcome to the Freedom Hunt. Thank you so much. Let's let's let the Attorney General have his have his full say. Can we uh, can we go to? I'm here today to announce that the program known as DACA that was effectuated under the Obama administration is being rescinded. Okay, um, and he also said that it is unconstitutional. The executive branch through DACA deliberately sought to achieve what the legislative branch specifically refused to authorize on multiple occasions. Such an open-ended circumvention of immigration laws was an unconstitutional exercise of authority by the executive branch. The effect of this unilateral executive amnesty, among other things, contributed to a surge of minors at the southern border that yielded terrible humanitarian consequences. It also denied jobs to hundreds of thousands of Americans by allowing those same illegal aliens to take those jobs. There you have it, the Attorney General, with both the announcement of the rescinding by this administration of deferred action for childhood arrivals and uh, making some or explaining uh, why it is that the administration has made this choice. Um, I I think that this is a a good sign. I think that the promises that the Trump administration made uh, with regard to immigration are central, and that if he were to turn his back on his base, if President Trump were to turn his back on his base on immigration issues, then, in fact, we would see that there'd be few other areas where we could really hold out much hope for the implementation of policies that are not part of business as usual. Because Republicans on the issue of immigration are often playing a double game. Republicans cannot be trusted in general. The GOP cannot be trusted on this issue of immigration. And so Trump forcing their hand here, getting rid of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, which... Wasn't President Obama's place to do in the first place, right? President Obama explicitly, as Attorney General Sessions said, went around the legislative branch here. Um, But President Obama decided that it was good politics for the Democratic Party to do this, that the damage done to the separation of powers was uh, a byproduct of the necessity for the Democrats of pushing the identity politics narrative as far as they can. And immigration is central to that. I should say illegal immigration, illegal immigration. We have to make sure that we use 
the proper terminology here because the left is always going to want us to speak about this in a certain way by forcing us to talk about it as they want us to we are going to find ourselves invariably in a defensive position using the terminology they want undocumented immigrant instead of illegal alien which is the official legal term in the federal code what is DACA? Hey, I'm sitting here talking about rescinding DACA just to review, as we're going we're gonna to have Andy McCarthy on later to talk about the legality of it. We are going to uh, talk in depth about North Korea, the major nuclear test that just happened there and what this means. Some really strong rhetoric coming out of senior administration officials, including Secretary of Defense Mattis and UN, uh, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Nikki Haley. Um, we And then I'll get into some other issues of... Oh, taxes and college campus craziness, and there's all sorts of stuff we'll get to on the show. Um, I'll even tell you about my time at the, well, you'll have to wait and see. I, I went out last night. I ventured out of my home to be somewhat social, so that'll be a story for the end of the show. Uh, but back to what matters here, back to the Deferred Action for Child Arrivals program. So this was set up, and this is all very manufactured. The Democrats picked the single most sympathetic constituency that they could within the illegal immigrant population and focused in on it and created this whole narrative and made this a big story, made this something where forget about knowing even what DACA is. All you're supposed to know is DACA support is for the nice people, is for the good people and people who oppose DACA are mean, are bad, don't care about their fellow human beings that's that's all the media wants you to know about this and i'll get into more of that in just a few moments it's just a it's a it's a human decency story they will tell you they won't tell you that it's flagrantly obviously unconstitutional for the president of the united states just to say that i'm going to grant a de facto legal status including Driver's licenses, social security cards, work permits, all to, to give the benefits of citizenship to people who are in the country who are not citizens. Uh, they will not tell you that that's all a part of this. They will not tell you that the courts have already been looking at this and stopped the Obama administration. Federal courts stopped the Obama administration from moving forward on all of those benefits, the provision of those licenses and the provisions of uh, the full provisions of DACA, because there is an understanding that once you give benefits, it's very hard to take them back. Just like an amnesty. Once amnesty happens, it's very hard to get rid of it. So. The Democrats have been engaged in what is a smart strategy here. So, um, they are looking to make this enormous issue of illegal immigration just about the single most sympathetic class. You see, Trump has been talking about illegal alien gangsters and illegal alien cartel connections and drugs and poisoning communities and hurting legal immigrants and hurting American jobs and hurting the American worker by competing at the lower end of the economic spectrum for those jobs with these newly arrived, often unskilled, often non-English speaking illegal aliens. So what do the Democrats do in response? Instead of addressing those charges, instead of saying, you know what, we should look at this issue and be honest that we are, this is now Democrats, 
effectively an open borders party. They want to count who's coming in so they can then make sure that they tax the rest of us appropriately. And, you know, they want to know who's here, but pretty much anyone can come. That's where the Democrats are. Go and look at Hillary's. Well, I guess it's gone now. What happened? Go and look at the former Hillary campaign website. You would see that uh, benefits, Obamacare benefits for illegal aliens was part of the platform of the Democratic or at least of the Democratic nominee for the presidency. They're going to give taxpayer benefits to you see news stories about illegal aliens who are getting full scholarships to various state universities elite universities oh look at this isn't this so great so they're turning down people who are here legally and who are citizens and who are paying taxes so that they can take people who are here illegally and what message does that send to all of us to every constituency to people of every background every economic socioeconomic racial and uh identity background i mean w- what message does that send to us democrats don't care It's just all about doing what benefits them at the ballot box. So DACA now includes people, I think, up to 35 or 37. It's really very little proof that's needed to or that you have to show for this. I mean, how are you going to prove that you came here when you're six instead of when you're, you know, 20? I mean, who's going to know? Or you came illegally. So they're going to take a lot of people's words for it. And that's, I think, um, where we need to be very careful. Another thing. I mean, very careful on how this is portrayed. One more thing. Why is the Trump administration, I have to say, focusing on this? I don't agree with tackling this first. There are so many other issues. I want to see wall funding. I want to see a change in immigration policy at the national level for E-Verify. I want to see action. And I want to see Republicans in Congress forced to take action. And that's not going to happen if this is just pushed off into the future and Congress can just keep talking about this. But for now, DACA is no more. Okay, team, so we are in the midst of a, a big discussion today across the country about DACA and what's been going on with The uh, administration's big announcement today, we had Jeff Sessions, I was talking about that, and and now the political divisions in this country, not just between Democrat and Republican, but within the Republican Party are exposed for so many to see. But you're not going to get, unless you listen to shows like this one, unless you go to BuckSexton.com, unless you download Buck Sexton with America Now on iTunes, uh, unless you search for if you just allow the media to present the narrative of DACA to you, this is some incredibly heartless evil thing. There's no two sides to it. It's racist. It's it's terrible. And I, I there are a few issues that I can think of that are as politically contentious as immigration, as, as illegal immigration or illegal, the status of illegal aliens in this country that the media just goes all in. Uh, almost across the board, there are exceptions, but the entire mainstream media is so incredibly favorably disposed to DACA. I mean, you had some some people that are covered under DACA, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, going on CNN. And this was, I want to just play a little bit of the sound. This is how CNN interviews people that are in the country illegally and that have applied for the DACA program. Um, I think it's terrifying that we can uh, be so easily betrayed by um, the government asking us to uh, give so much information that we had to give. 
to be accepted into DACA and then to have it turned around on a very exceptional group of people. I want to ask okay. you about that because when so it's, you- uh, stop it, stop that for a second. I you have to. <laughs> he says. And I know this is one of the stories you'll hear a lot of, um, which is that people trusted in the federal government. They came forward. They presented their information. But when you look at it, they were subject to deportation before. They're not necessarily being deported now. In fact, I think that a lot of the fury over this would dissipate when people realize that the chances of someone who is covered under DACA actually being among those that are deported. And this is a whole separate conversation as to why that's the case is very slim. Uh, we have not seen large numbers of uh, those covered under DACA being, well, we, I do. I doubt, I should say, we will see large numbers of those covered under DACA deported because they're not going to be, generally speaking, and I've seen some of the stories about uh, illegal aliens under DACA who have you know, been engaged in criminal activity. We, I've even seen stuff about how they've killed people. But generally speaking, they're not going to be high deportation priorities and there is a prior prioritization process with deportations and so uh, i think that there's a bit of hysteria around this because the media has been telling us for a long time that deferred action for childhood arrivals is just about toddlers that were brought here without any say in anything and now they're here and they're as american as as you know as apple pie and all the rest of it but the the truth is that People in this process are often lying to the government about their status. This never gets talked about. If you're an illegal in this country, you're often using a fake Social Security card. You're you're breaking all kinds of laws, and they're not enforced against illegal aliens because it seems mean. Because, oh, well, they have no choice. If they want to work, they're going to have to lie on these forms. Uh, and and even to say that this is a group that is 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 special somehow like they've done something great they it's almost like daca people covered under daca have been given some award and now it's being taken away from them. like i'm i'm a great person and now they're telling me that i'm it has nothing to do with whether you're a good person or not in fact jeff sessions said that earlier today the nation must set and enforce a limit on how many immigrants we admit each year, and that means all cannot be accepted. This does not mean they are bad people or that our nation disrespects or demeans them in any way. It means we are properly enforcing our laws as Congress has passed them. That's that's what this is all about. Do you believe in the law or not? Are you somebody who thinks that the law has has meaning as written, or is a law just whatever you want it to be, whenever you want it to be that thing? If it's the latter, then the law is, well, I, it's a suggestion, right? The, the law is like the suggestion box in the restaurant that nobody really reads. I mean, who cares? The law has to have meaning based on the text, based on the words, and that illegal aliens in this particular case have been so lauded by the media. I mean, they are going so far overboard to try to convince us that this is not just a class of people that, you know, are, are they haven't done anything wrong and, you know, they're not bad people. That's I think that's all fair to say, right? That's all true. But that they're special. They're they're dreamers. I mean, they've created this whole narrative of how amazing the dreamers are. Um, and they ask them, I mean, th- these are the typical discussions that they have on TV about this. Clip- I was upset and some 
This I is a dreamer on CNN here. Asked I think how it she was feels. a fight that we all worked really hard to get and to be in, in this situation. It's really difficult. And on Halika, how would your life change? You are a mom of four children. And so if yes. you cannot stay in the U.S., what happens? Well, I'm, my husband and I, we, you know, we're a team. Um, he's the one that supports the household. I take care of the kids. Um, if I were to be deported, definitely it's going to put a burden in our family. Um, I'm Look, the one. She, that, she seems you know, like a, like a perfectly a perfectly nice person. It's it's not personal. But the media wants to make it personal. They want to tell you about specific cases, and they want this to be an emotional response that we all have, and not one based upon the law. The law is harsh. The law is force. The law takes from people, takes their freedom for, in this country, many times, pretty minimal stuff. Uh, and that we are now going to pretend that violating the immigration laws of this country should have no negative impact whatsoever, that you can... Break the law with impunity because it's going to make people understandably very sad, including people who are not affected by it. I, I keep going back to this. You know, you will not see stories on CNN or anywhere else uh, on the left wing media side of things about somebody who, you know, the, the family of someone who gets sent away for 10 years for insider trading, which still some people believe is a largely victimless crime. I don't agree with that, but it's certainly not something that makes you a, a, a public safety risk. You're not going to you're not going to see them having on the teary eyed wives and, and weepy children of those who are, you know, who get nailed by the federal government for uh, Medicare fraud or bank fraud or wire fraud. You know, they're, they're not going to be. Oh, those are such terrible crimes. Oh, that's so terrible. Do you see what he did? You know, he overbuilt Medicare. I mean, yeah, it's not good. You should be punished. But they send people to prison for that. They will send people to prison for that. And you will not see their families given a platform to force everyone to think that, you know, this is just so mean and unfair. That's what they break this down to. Because on the merits, DACA is unconstitutional. It is lawless. It's unfair to legal immigrants. It's unfair to U.S. citizens. It has uh, completely broken down the, at least on the left, the separation of powers that should be in place between the executive branch and, uh, and you know, the legislative branch. But they like it so much. It's so important to the Democrat Party and its identity politics that they're willing to say anything at this point. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Clear. Team Buck is cleared Roger that. and ready for the buck brief. Any threat to the United States or its territories, including Guam or our allies, will be met with a massive military response, a response both effective and overwhelming. I'm not looking to the total annihilation of a country, namely North Korea. But as I said, we have many options to do so. Kim Jong-un shows no such understanding. His abusive use of missiles and his nuclear threats show that he is begging for war. North Korea has rattled the world once again with yet another nuclear test. And this time it is believed, at least the early reporting on it, uh, is that this was a hydrogen bomb, which would mean that North Korea is now mastering 
instead of splitting the atom, it is engaged through fission. It is engaged in fusion, and it is a thermonuclear power instead of just being a nuclear weapons-capable state, uh, which means that the weaponry, the nuclear weaponry that it conceivably could call upon, is many, many times more powerful than. Uh, anything that was previously thought for the hermit kingdom in uh, based out of Pyongyang. So this is a major concern. And I think that we've gone through now many iterations of the same discussion under this administration. Let's just keep on putting this in the proper context. Uh, the Obama administration had strategic patience on all things East Asia policy, including North Korea, which was a fancy way of saying that they really didn't do a whole lot of anything. Let's keep in mind that the Obama administration uh, was touting itself as brilliant on foreign policy when in reality it was just holding up in action as strategic savvy. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we don't have a major problem here today with Kim Jong-un. And Nikki Haley, I think, uh, struck upon a very important point when she said that North Korea is begging for war. I wrote about this today on thehill.com. I'd recommend you go check out the piece. Uh, you can read it on thehill.com or you can also go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. It will be posted. It is posted up there. And my piece is what if North Korea wants war or maybe North Korea wants war. Uh, and we need to start thinking in that uh, in, in those terms, because so much of our discussion is, look, they're just this is all about concessions and this is all about getting uh, us to give them food aid or to open up markets to them to ease some of the sanctions. That may all be true in the short term. But if in the long term, North Korea's goal is still, in fact, to reunify the Korean peninsula with force, and I believe that that is the case, then everything that's done in the meantime has to be seen through that lens. Everything that we are trying to do diplomatically looks more and more like it is just glorified delay and that it's not going to stop anything. We have decades of failure to look to on North Korea policy. That much is clear. Uh, and we now have a North Korean state that if you look on their timeline, if you look at what has happened in the last, let's say, 20 years or so, they keep getting more, they keep getting more and more from the international community despite their uh, provocations. In fact, because of their provocations. So we reward bad behavior and then we wonder uh, why is it that this bad behavior continues? I mean, this is a pretty straightforward proposition when you think of it that way and north korea just continues to get closer and closer to a nuclear capable intercontinental ballistic missile that could hit any city in the united states and so north korean intentions matter a whole lot just thinking about how we can establish stronger sanctions and i know that's that's what nikki haley went into next oh how do we get better sanctions on North Korea? What can we do to choke them off more economically? That is not going to be enough. There is no such thing as a sanctions regime that punishes the people at the top 
more than the average citizen. And the average citizen in North Korea is already so beaten down, so oppressed, so starved, in many cases literally, uh, that they aren't going to do anything other than just suffer more under the boot heel of this regime. Uh, North Korea is not like other countries, and that's what I was really trying to get at today in my North Korea may want war piece, which I hope you will take a chance and read up on the Hill. We, we keep thinking that we can divert it from war with inducements, but if its entire reason for existing as a state is to unify the Korean Peninsula by force of arms. It's not going to do it. No one in South Korea is like, yeah, I got an idea. Let's like live in a really poor, totalitarian, bizarre autocracy. So let's let North Korea just run the show here. That's never going to happen. But North Korea by force, seizing South Korea, we may think that's never going to happen. But that doesn't mean that the North Koreans, or at least the North Korean leadership, thinks that it will never happen. And that's a very important distinction because if the entire purpose of the state, of the North Korean state, is military conquest of South Korea, all these uh, things that we do in the meantime, all these inducements and promises and, you know, carrots and sticks, they're not going to add up to very much. Sure, in the, they may get us a little peace of mind for a while, but does anyone really think that the North is going to give up its nuclear weapons program? In fact, when have we ever, through a sanctions regime like this, uh, without the credible threat of an invasion, which in the case of something like a Libya or certainly Iraq, you could talk about invasions. There's no as long as South Korea is within artillery range of or Seoul, particularly the capital of South Korea is within artillery range of the north. It's just a non-starter. There's no outside intervention that's going to topple this dictator. There is no sign of of anything coming from within, from regime change on the inside of North Korea. And so we have to wonder, we have to ask the question, okay, well, what options do we have? I absolutely hate it when we fall into the trap of just this, oh, uh, you know, there's no good options. All, the only options are bad options. Uh, because you could say this about so many foreign policy problems. This is just a statement of the obvious. It's not helpful. It's not an organizing principle, to borrow a term from Hillary Clinton. Uh, when, by the way, she said about Barack Obama, don't do stupid stuff, although he didn't say stuff, is not an organizing principle. I, I like that. It, it's not an organizing principle to say, well, there are no good options on North Korea uh, because we already know that. Uh, and that's true of a lot of foreign policy problems. Whenever you're talking about either massive economic warfare or actual military kinetic warfare to handle a problem, you're already looking at tough options. Uh, there's no such thing as a, a good option here. We are dealing with a regime that is deeply xenophobic, deeply racist, and hyper-militaristic. So when you start to think about it that way, now you look at the realities of our policy choices and you're like, well, in what universe, in what universe are we able to get Kim Jong-un to behave differently because we're going to uh, get him what? We're, we're going to tell China? This, this is always what I find to be fascinating. We're going to tell China to just cut off all fuel to North Korea, cut off coal to North Korea. Uh, essentially bring their military machinery to a screeching halt. What if China just doesn't want to do that? Because 
China, one, doesn't want a North Korea that crumbles because then reunification with a close U.S. ally, South Korea, spells strategic problems for China. China's whole uh, MO right now is to establish regional dominance and push out beyond the states that we are using our allies as a cordon for Chinese aggression and expansionism. South Korea, Japan, the Philippines, just go down the list of all these different countries that we are hoping to, yes, box in Chinese militaristic aggression, expansionism, and uh, irredentism. I mean, that's what we're hoping to to accomplish vis-a-vis China over the long term. The Chinese know this. So you think they're just going to hand over the Korean peninsula to us? There's no... There's nothing that we can do. There's no inducement that we can bring about that would push China so hard that they would push North Korea to collapse. Never mind the fact that, you know, we think of, oh, there's pretty warm relations between those countries, such as they are, I guess, now, as warm as they can be with North Korea. But, you know, Japan has fought against Korea. Korea has fought against, you know, Korea has fought alongside China. Korea's had, pro- I mean, Japan and, uh, and China have problems. I mean, there's a lot of, of, enmity between these different countries that still exists and you think china wants to make north korea its problem we don't have that leverage in fact i think that one of the big problems here is that the chinese recognize the strategic depth against us that north korea is for them um because it's they feel like look if north korea really i mean blows up is a bad term to use here but if north korea really uh goes after us or goes after anyone, it's going to be either Japan or the United States. And you know what? I think somewhere deep down in the Chinese Central Committee's psyche, there's a part of them that's like, that's not our problem, really. You know, let let the West and its allies handle that. And I just don't see China as this trump card, pardon the expression, uh, against North Korea. Ambassador, what are we potentially risking now? If we say, okay, we're going to go in with some strategic military strikes to take out his nuclear weapons, to to possibly take him out or at least remove him from power, what is the risk? I mean, are we going to wind up with, with so many people's lives gone in South Korea, in Seoul, because we make that move? Let me ask you this. How do you feel about dead Americans? Yeah, no, I I mean, I, I, look, I know this what you're is, saying. This you're, is you're, not, you're, yeah, yeah, this is not easy. This is not easy. But does anybody think the decision will be easier a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now? Roosevelt said, when you see a rattlesnake poised to strike, you don't wait until it has struck before you crush it. There you have a uh, former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, uh, John Bolton. I, I've uh, worked with Bolton and I think he's a he's a very smart guy. Um, and, and I don't mean to be putting this at his feet at all, but you'll notice that, you know, he's presenting you with the option of North Korea can't continue. Like, we've got to do something about North Korea, meaning that this state cannot be allowed to just do what it has been doing because we are going to be on the wrong side of this and it's going to get very ugly. And our options will. Yes, they're all already not good, but they are just going to get Worse, uh, And I wanted to note that when it comes to areas uh, of foreign po- areas, rather, where you have an echo chamber effect that is so powerful that it forces countless experts into just a- agreement and a-, a refusal to even begin to think for themselves. 
foreign policy is is the is really the ultimate echo chamber in the sense that you know you have long time horizons for events to happen you have uh a desire to sound smart today, even if you know in six months what you're saying will be wrong. And look, I'm sure that a lot of foreign policy experts out there also try to be contrarian once in a while. And and if they felt like the country was really in harm's way, they would speak out, although maybe I'm giving them too much credit. But in general, the day-to-day effect of foreign policy consensus uh, is that the consensus is hard to escape. The moment you break away from it, well, well, this is what the, you know, the experts say the following. And if you're not in agreement with the experts, it is used to discount you as though the experts were, you know, medical doctors who have been studying treatments for a disease for a long time. And you're just some guy who walks in off the street. doesn't matter what your credentials are. If you break away from the foreign policy consensus, you are to borrow a term from the left, marginalized. And on North Korea, if you were to point out that the fancy K Street consultancies that do international relations thinking and and various think tanks and the foreign policy elites on both sides of the aisle, in both parties, have gotten this wrong over and over and over again, you would probably get some sneer uh, from assuming anybody was going to challenge you on this from somebody who would say, hey, you know, maybe if you could read Korean or maybe if you were like this expert, you'd feel differently. There's a difference between claiming expertise and recognizing that something is not working. Right? You don't have to be a- an expert in healthcare actuarial sciences to know that healthcare costs keep going up and our healthcare system has some big problems and a lot of it's based on redistribution and what are effectively socialist principles, although it's not technically a socialist healthcare system. And by the same token, you can look at what's going on with North Korea. Are their nukes getting more dangerous or less? Have they been firing off more missiles or less? Has there been any stoppage? Has there been any cessation in its bellicose rhetoric or its uh, all of the things that it does around the world, you know, its support for terror? I mean, to say that North Korea is part of the axis of evil might even be an understatement. It's really the pinnacle of the axis of evil in many ways because it doesn't even love its own people at all. It has no regard for the lives of everyday average North Koreans. It's not that they're pushing uh, towards some grandiose goal like previous, and North Korea as a communist state isn't even really truly accurate. It's given up most Marxist party doctrine along the way entirely, and, and Juche, which is its doctrine of North, that Juche is North Korea's doctrine of self-reliance isn't really a doctrine. And, and there's plenty of reason to believe that this is just something that people there say in order to have something they can call a doctrine. Uh, but it, it doesn't really mean all that much. Uh, it doesn't have any impact on the day to day policy operations of the country. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, when, when you look at what is happening and and where all of this is going and you begin to find yourself asking questions about the experts who all along have been pointing in a certain direction, you got to say, okay, you know, enough is enough. This is just getting worse all the time. And the discussion is so circular that, you know, there are no new ideas. And I think we're at a point where there should be some new, there should be some new ideas. 
And if that means that those ideas are shot down because they're either too, uh, too brutal, meaning the casualties would be too high from implementing them, or uh, they would require much more in the way of resources, we should at least know that. Right? The people making the decisions about our policies vis-a-vis North Korea should be honest with the American people about what the future is going to look like here if this continues. I mean, I, I think Ambassador Bolton saying that you got to have the South take over the North that is the only way that this is going to go unless it's going to go with the North uh, engaging in some kind of a first strike and waiting around until either they believe that the U.S. won't back up South Korea. That's a possibility. You know, we can have an administration come in, a commander in chief come in and decide that we're going to draw down our presence there. That's possible. Maybe they're waiting for that. Maybe they miscalculate. Maybe Kim Jong-un isn't as rational as so many people seem to want to believe he is. I want to spend some time, team, today, not just on all of the, the, the biggest stories, which right now I think is a combination of Irma and uh, DACA and, of course, North Korea's nuclear test. We'll be getting to all of that. But I also wonder if, in fact, Trump is going to manage to get tax reform done. I've been thinking about this for a while, and, you know, I think at the corporate level, it's very possible. Now, that would be good. There's a lot of reason to believe that the Trump administration pushing for lower tax rates on corporations, particularly for small businesses, would really accelerate hiring and would be a massive input on the growth side of the equation. But for those of us who keep hearing from Trump because he says it, things like, hey, your tax rate, there's going to be a massive tax cut for all of you. I just wonder, you see, there has to be groundwork laid for some of these issues. You can't just come at it and assume that people are going to be with you every step of the way and that there's going to be an ease with which you can just push them into it because of the force of your personality or because you're constitutionally sound or whatever it may be. You got to get the people's expectations in line with what is possible and also what the costs are tax cuts are for conservatives i think among the most widely uh supported things that you can possibly push for right within the gop forget about conservatives people love tax cuts understandably so i want to keep more of my money i get annoyed every time i have to write a check to the irs every time i find myself going through receipts and trying to figure out hey Is this, in fact, a situation where I can deduct or I can deduct? The tax code is a nightmare. It is absolutely the most annoying thing for all of us to deal with. And when you start to look at the realities of it, I mean, you look at what really is, in fact, written in there. You're like, this is just a giant giveaway to special interest. So there's so much to work with. But here's the part. Here's the part that the Trump administration, I don't think, has really spent much time on. If we're going to do these, if we're going to do tax cuts that are meaningful, there also has to be a willingness to reduce government spending elsewhere. And this is why I think it's, you know, we're, we're getting a little bit too excited, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves when it comes to how easy this is going to be. You see, most taxes that we pay are really all about a few things. Health care for people 65 and older, Social Security the welfare state in one form or another, the permanent bureaucracy of the federal government and the military. If you add those things in, you've pretty much covered spending. 
So where are the cuts going to come or, or where are we going to start spending less? It was fascinating to watch Republicans bail on what was clearly a very modest spending cut, clearly a very modest attempt to not even cut spending with the sequester. I'm talking about sequestration now. You remember this? Remember sequestration? They were going to, this is what Paul Ryan and Republicans were finally going to be responsible. And there was a willingness to do what had to be done when it came to budgetary matters, right? That's what we were told, at least to start it, to start the ball rolling. They, they got rid of sequestration. All, all of a sudden, we started hearing about how, oh, this base is going to close and because it was only about military cuts. The, the Democrats played the game of thinking, well, the, the Republicans will never allow military cuts to happen. And at first, no, in fact, there were some cuts to the military that the original sequestration that the Republican House was w- willing to go forward with, willing to pass. And, and that was, in fact, the, the budget or the, well, I should say the federal government spending. We don't really pass budgets anymore, right? I mean, we call it a budget, but in reality, it's it's a just a continuation of spending us into oblivion where are we where are we going to see a reduction in government spending we can talk about tax cuts all day and i think we should and i love tax cuts i want a flat tax i want the federal government to be taking much less money from people i think you'd have an enormous explosion of growth because people would have money to do things that they know that they know better than the government what should be done with their money i really do believe that that would happen and I think that small businesses in particular, from having a little more liquidity on their balance sheets, would greatly benefit from a tax cut. I, I think that that's something that is often overlooked in all of our discussions about, well, you know, what can the Trump, what can Trump really do? Not our discussions, in the media's discussions. What can Trump really do to jumpstart the economy? The single biggest thing would be tax cuts. But... Where do we see less spending? Because the government is currently set up to do an amount of federal spending that is mind boggling. It is vast and that we couldn't even with sequestration start to bring the spending, the the spending cost curve in the other direction. It wasn't really a cut. It was a decrease in the rate of increase of government spending. They couldn't even do that. So you can't be, on the one hand, somebody who complains about a federal government debt that is out of control. You can't say, oh, we're $20 trillion in debt, but we should have all the spending that we have, and we should do tax cuts. I'm all for tax cuts, but they need to be making the case for where we're going to, what, is it going to be cutting fraud, waste, and abuse? I mean, how many times have we heard that before? Are we really supposed to believe that if only we had a federal government that was a little bit you know, more of a, of a penny pincher, I mean, trying to manage programs better, that we would be able to make up for the hundreds of billions of dollars in shortfall that have become kind of normal in the budget in, or in the, uh, in the debt process, right, of the deficit year in and year out. So as I look at all of this, I just think to myself, this is where I think the Trump administration can get it started. They, they get the corporate tax cut. And I think that that can go because Democrats love big business. They love getting donations from major multinational corporations. I mean, you look, one of the only places that I think you have a greater concentration of support for Democrats in terms of dollars spent in the political process than within journalism, because like over 90 percent 
of journalists gave money that 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 listed their de- that listed their donation gave money to Democrats, as we know. Google, GE, these major American corporations, a lot of the richest people in them, a lot of the people that are running the show, especially when you're talking about Silicon Valley, they give money to Democrats. So businesses of all sizes certainly like keeping more of their cash. And so it's popular. It's something that as we see this playing out, we can understand just how it is that you can get a buy, you can get agreement finally. I mean, we've been talking about infrastructure a little bit people say oh on infrastructure that's where trump may have the ability to get democrats yeah because it's government spending on corporate taxes i think you'll see some level of agreement because democrats like business too it's on the individual tax rates the marginal tax rate which i think the highest now is 39 percent there's talk among the trumpsters of bringing it down to 30 percent something like that That's where the fight is, because that's where the class warfare happens, which is where the Democrats get all of their political value. They really want class warfare. It's helpful for the identity politics narrative. It's helpful for the growth of big government. It is it is absolutely necessary for the storyline of government has to redistribute wealth more. It's necessary for economic fairness. So that's where I think that the Trump administration, as we're talking all this different stuff, sure, there's, I I thought more about taxes over the weekend, and I spoke to a friend of mine, he's like, no, 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 don't, don't get too sour on this idea, because first of all, it's one step, there could be many others, and second of all, you may see a situation, you will see a situation, if the tax rate is cut from, I think, 30% on the corporate side to 15%, where all of a sudden... A business is going to have a lot more cash on hand and a business that has more cash on hand is in a place where it may be able to hire new people, do the things that would bring about the economic prosperity that is so central to Trump's message. Yeah, it's about immigration. It's about making America great. It's about national security. There's a lot of things. But the twin pillars of Trumpism, I think, if you could call them that, are economic uh, economic growth and expansion and immigration and secure borders, right? Those immigration and economics are, are the, the heart, the beating heart of Trumpism right now. And if it's going to be worth anything, if this is, and I certainly hope it is more than just having somebody in the form of Donald Trump, who is able to, um, somebody in the form of Donald Trump was able to fight the media and, and, and push back against the lies. That's all great. But the policies have to fall into place, too. We've seen now a deferral of action on deferred action for childhood arrivals. So we've seen a deferral of a deferral. Taxes, this has got to happen. They're not going to fight over the budget. I don't think the wall showdown is going to happen. So we'll have to see from right here. But also the the change in spending. We've got to hear about where the spending change is going to happen, too, or else this thing's never going to get very far. Yet another hurricane poised to devastate the U.S. Uh, Buck Sexton back with you here, squad. Um, I, 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 it's hard to believe. It, it really is. Uh, people are now reporting that this uh, Hurricane Irma may become the strongest Atlantic hurricane, or I'm sorry, it is the strongest Atlantic hurricane outside the Gulf and the Caribbean ever recorded. Here's the Miami Herald. Irma spun into a monster storm Tuesday morning 
with sustained winds topping 180 miles per hour, becoming the strongest Atlantic hurricane ever recorded outside the Gulf of Mexico and Caribbean, National Hurricane Center forecasters said earlier today. As the hurricane turns closer to the U.S. coast, its path becomes more certain, with South Florida, particularly the Keys, increasingly likely to take a hit. Uh, Tropical storm force winds could arrive as early as Friday. Governor Rick Scott has declared a state of emergency for all uh, or a state of emergency for all 67 counties and has all 7,000 members of the state's National Guard to report to duty on Friday. Uh, this is this is a monster. Irma, we just had Harvey. We're still uh, looking at the stories and, and sending money and doing what we can to help our fellow Americans in Southeast Texas and Louisiana who got just battered by Harvey and unprecedented flooding. That Hurricane Irma is now scheduled to be a Category 5, a Category 5 storm. It just seems it just seems unthinkable. I mean, how much uh, can the you know can the people of you know the the U.S. Southeast and and uh, you know, Southeast Texas here? How much can they endure? I mean, that this would happen one and then the other in rapid succession. Mother Nature can be very cruel. I certainly uh, hope that you know Florida has the best possible response in place for this because it's looking like it's going to be uh, absolutely devastating and uh, 185 mile per hour uh, super winds I see here on the Drudge Report and it's going to hit Florida and hit Florida hard Uh, already you're seeing all of the usual uh, expected reporting on this kind of uh, a storm where people are there's a run on food and and fresh water in stores is all gone all the stuff in the stores is gone and the whole country is just mobilized we've just been through this uh, this national outpouring of, of sympathy and, and more than just sympathy of help you had the you know you had the Cajun uh, the, the Cajun Navy showing up and Cajun coastal search and rescue and countless volunteers you you had it felt like every guy with a bass boat, uh, from you know northern Florida out to the coast of Texas and back again was showing up in uh, in Texas trying to help people out showing up in Louisiana trying to help people out and now we may be subjected the American people may be subjected to watching helplessly as our brothers and sisters down in Florida get just uh, just get hit and hit hard with another monster storm um I am uh, very concerned about this. I, I wish that there was more to, to say and, you know, more to say about how we could help other than everyone's got to batten down the hatches and prepare. I hope people are going to evacuate those areas of, of Florida that are scheduled to get hit the hardest. I, I hope that there's, um, you know, ample resources in place for them to get out of this, uh, get out of the area as much as they can. Although I don't know, in some places there it may be better to to see how it shakes out. I, I'm I'm not a storm expert. We'll, we'll have some storm experts on the show again later on this week. We certainly know some, considering that we've had to reach out in just the last week or so to get people uh, telling us about 
what it means when there's massive flooding and what it means when there are um, serious public health issues that come up as a result of this. And, and I know that th- there is the possibility that this storm will shift and that it will either uh, lessen or, or change course somewhat, I think, and based on what I'm reading here, and, and I cannot claim to be a, a meteorologist or a, a storm expert of any kind, but there is the possibility that it's not quite as, as uh, a massive hit as we are currently expecting. But, you know, you just think that this is this is jumping. You know, this is if you jump into the shell, I mean, into the uh, the crater left by an artillery shell and somehow the next round lands in the same the same crater. It's just that's not supposed to happen. Right. That's not the way this is. You figure that given how many years we've had without a major hurricane making landfall that we'd get hit with two in a row. Uh, you know, psychologically, I can't imagine what it's like right now preparing for this in in South Florida. So th- those of you who are, are in Florida, as we get closer, I'm certainly going to want to know if you can you can weigh in and, and tell me, you know, what you're seeing going on. And, and if the storm, I think the storm is going to hit really this weekend. So we'll have a sense of how bad it is by by Monday when we're back on air to be sure after the our last show, which will be uh, this week, Friday. Uh, but it, it's looking like this has just been getting uh, more and more powerful. And there are some very uh, very real concerns here that we might have a another natural disaster that causes tens of billions of dollars of damage, and you know there could be loss of life from this too. So we'll we'll be watching it closely. I, I don't have more for it, other more to to add right now, other than just I can't I can't believe it. We got another one, Irma now after Harvey, another one. Looks like it's going to be hitting the U.S. Um, I, I have a friend by the I should note who is down, uh, a dear friend who is down just as of I think the last couple of days doing Harvey relief efforts I'm going to try to reach him down there if I can uh, he's not somebody who particularly is uh, media uh, you know I don't know media friendly is not the right word but not a public person so I don't know if he'll really want to come on and talk on air but I'll at least be touching base with them to hear about how Harvey relief efforts are going which they're going to stretch on for weeks months years um, but already it looks like the biggest, uh, the, the, well, the, the most attention when it comes to storms and natural disasters for the next few days is going to be directed towards what happens with Hurricane Irma. Maybe it lessens. I pray. I really hope that it, hope and pray that this thing is not nearly as devastating as it is currently expected to be. That just feels like, uh, how could that even be possible at this point that we would be, you know, Two hurricanes in such a short period of time. Two hurricanes uh, that are going to be doing so much damage. Um, like we'll watch it. Eight four four nine hundred buck. Eight four four nine hundred two eight two five. Do give me a call and love to hear from your team. And we'll be coming back and uh, I'll talk to you about North Korea. We're big news out of North Korea in just a few. Uh, stay with me. Okay, team, welcome back. Buck Sexton here with you in the Freedom Hut. We had Jeff Sessions announcing that DACA was rescinded today. Uh, people are weighing in on the politics of this, and there's a lot of heated emotions around it all. What about the legality, or maybe a better way to put it, what about the constitutionality, specifically, of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals 
program. We've got the one and only Andy McCarthy joining us now. He's a former assistant U.S. attorney and a best-selling author and contributing editor at National Review. His latest up on NationalReview.com to end DACA, follow the Constitution. Andy, uh, great to have you. Thanks so much, Buck. All right. Follow follow the Constitution and DACA. How? You just end it. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Segment done. Now, go ahead. (laughs) The... um... The Obama administration actually didn't even put this out by an executive order. Uh, DACA was installed by uh, a memorandum, a guidance memorandum that was issued in 2012 by uh, Secretary Napolitano when she was running the uh, Department of Homeland Security. So the way to end it would have been to simply withdraw that guidance. It's not even something that you know, needed much of a formal process to uh, to do. And frankly, um, I, you know, I've been disappointed that they didn't do it on day one, as President Trump said he would. Now, why do you think he didn't, Andy? I mean, what 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 are the motivations at play? Well, I think this is like a lot of things that um, Trump talked about on the campaign trail, which is which is to say, he has a. Uh, enough knowledge to to talk about them, but maybe not enough to understand them thoroughly. Um, things tend to be a lot more complicated once you're governing than they are on the campaign trail when there's really no uh, accountability for uh, the, the things that you say, at least not in, in real time. So it's very easy to say, you know, the minute I get in there, I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing. And then you get in, you find that either the things you were talking about are much more complicated than perhaps you realized, or the process of getting out from under them is more complicated than you realized. In this instance, I think the process for getting out from under this was a lot less complicated than they've let on. And in fact, they've made it more complicated by continuing to carry DACA out for the last eight months. Now, DACA is, in your, in your estimation, your opinion, Andy, just it's flagrantly unconstitutional, right? Yeah, and I'm not the only one who says that. President Obama used to say it before he changed his mind and did it. I mean, he, you know, Obama pretty flatly conceded that he didn't have as president the authority to confer positive legal benefits, which is what uh, Deferred Action for Child Arrivals, DACA, does. Uh, one of the things that DACA does, aside from uh, conferring a de facto amnesty on a category of illegal immigrants is give them positive legal benefits like work permits and I believe social security registration and the like. Those are things that in our system only Congress has the authority to confer. So DACA, one of the things I I haven't really understood well about President Trump's approach to this is that we've discussed this in terms, especially in the last week or two, Buck, of will Trump end DACA or not? And what I've tried to point out to people is had Trump not ended DACA, there was ongoing litigation before the U.S. courts that was going to attend, going to end DACA because it, it's unconstitutional. So the question really wasn't um, would Trump end it? The question to my mind was, was Trump going to act to end it before the courts did? 
I'm speaking to Andy McCarthy. He's a former U.S. Attor- uh, assistant U.S. attorney, best-selling author, and read his latest up on National Review. Andy, if I recall, when this was making its way through the courts under the Obama administration, the Department of Homeland Security was planning to just start distributing documents to people, if, if memory serves. That they, they were going to go ahead and, as you mentioned, give the DACA benefits before the courts could weigh in on whether those benefits should be given by the federal government in the first place. I feel like they were trying to make it a, a fait accompli, as they say, across the ocean. Yeah, well, Buck, you know, I think we've talked about this as the Obama approach to a lot of things, which, you know, I, I know people get tired of hearing about Alinsky, but that really is the uh, Alinsky community organizer approach. That is that you use your leverage as um, the person who is controlling the levers uh, in order to, to change the facts on the ground so that, um, like, for example, with the Iran deal, um, President Obama didn't follow the treaty provision of the Constitution, but the deal was structured in a way that so altered the reality of relations between Iran and other countries that it was effectively impossible to undo uh, by the time the successor came to power. And I think with respect to DACA, it's the same thing. They tried to to get this program up and going in so robust a way that it would be both you know, politically and practically very difficult to unravel it by the time his successor came along. Yeah, and as everyone who looks at the history of, of immigration reform in the past, stretching back all the way to Reagan and the amnesty in the 80s knows, the one thing you can be sure of is the amnesty. Everything else, the enforcement mechanisms, the uh, the legislation that's supposed to add you know border security or whatever it may be, that's always negotiable. But the amnesty ends up being forever. Or, or rather, the amnesty at least will definitely happen. Yeah, and the interesting thing about Obama's approach to that, Buck, is that Realizing that he was never going to get a blanket amnesty on all illegal immigrants, which they would like to have gotten, the the next trick instead was to do things like DACA. And, you know, you can sell people on DACA because the the typical immigrant that they have in their mind is very sympathetic. That is, you know, somebody who at, say, 18 months old is brought into the United States through no fault of his or her own by his or, her, his or her parents, and then grows up essentially as an American, really knows no other country than the United States, and at some point learns uh, that you know he, he or she is a stateless person, that you know, you, you're not really from the country that you're uh, purportedly a national of, but at the same time you're not welcomed by the country, the only country that you've ever known as home. That's a very sympathetic set of circumstances. So they use that to get DACA in the public mind is something that you could you could wrap your brain around and even immigration restrictionists have to say you know those are people who might warrant some consideration so then once you establish that what you then do is try to make the definition of who falls into daca as elastic as possible so it turns out that we're not talking about like people who were born here brought here as, as infants right but the next thing you know it's anybody who's less than 37 um, who says he was brought here and has continuously lived here, you know, at some point before he was 16. Um, and, and a lot of this is, you know, it's very... Yeah, shady. does anyone have to... How do you prove this, Andy? Do they have to prove it beyond just swearing that, the, yeah, I promise? Well, yeah, here's another problem. We only got about 20 seconds, Andy, but I wanted to get you in. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, most people think that, you, you know, it's up to the government to prove it, right? 
because we think about the criminal justice system where you're presumed innocent. But that's not the way this is supposed to work. It should be incumbent on them to prove it. All right. We'll have to see. Andy McCarthy, everybody, check out his latest to end DACA. Follow the Constitution. It's up on nationalreview.com right now. Andy, always a privilege, always a pleasure, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks, Buck. Great to talk to you. I'd like to talk to you about how the progressive mantra of, well our way or the highway or else we'll punch you like Antifa uh, punches people, that that's destroying the culture. This is not just an issue for political discourse and discussion. Uh, and they're affecting the culture in some pretty nasty ways. We've got Heather Wilhelm on the line. She's a columnist for National Review and a senior contributor to The Federalist. She's written a piece about the death of fun as we know it. And I want to ask her about this. Heather, great to have you. Hey, thanks for having me on. All right. How is fun dead and who killed it? Uh, Well, you know, it is amazing to see the creep of politics into every single nook and cranny of our culture these days. And that was what our uh, that was what my column was about. It's exhausting. And uh, a couple of examples that I gave were, you know, just last week, it seems, you know, maybe like 100 years ago, maybe it was earlier this week, the big brouhaha about Melania Trump's high heeled shoes. you know, this was this was an outrage. This was the end of America as we knew it, that Melania Trump wore high heeled shoes for a 20 foot walk to a private plane and then changed her shoes <laughs> once she got on the ground in Texas to, you know, basically take some pictures with the president uh, to raise awareness about the hurricane. This became a whole media issue. New York Times wrote pieces about it. The Washington Post wrote pieces about it. Politico wrote pieces about it. All deadly serious. Uh and at a certain point, you've got to ask, this is just taking over people's minds, and it's just crushing every little bit of fun in our society. Another example I gave was Taylor Swift, who, of course, uh, as I said in my piece, she's got the drama, you know, she's got the breakups, she's got the laughing all the way to the bank, <laughs> she's, she's a brilliant performer, and all of a sudden with this latest uh, that she's releasing a new album, and everyone is very concerned with Taylor Swift's politics. Uh, I saw people think that she might be a Trump supporter just because she didn't weigh in in favor of Hillary. It's amazing. T-Swift is a Trumper. She 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 had you know she had the temerity not to you know bore us all with her political views, which in my opinion makes her a hero in today's culture, and even that freaks people out. You're right. There's you know whispers that you know well if she's not talking about politics, then you know maybe she did vote for Trump. There was an article in New York Magazine talking about how her new song was a perfect anthem for the Trump era. Uh, you know it just goes on and on and on. And you know the point of my column was. You know, politics has its place, and unfortunately, we're letting it seep into every corner of our culture, and I think that that's, in effect, kind of destroying fun for a lot of people, myself included. I have to say, one of the more uh, surprising, because it's so obvious, this this ploy, one of the more obvious ones that I see, or one of the more annoying and obvious ones that I see, is when people who, and I've only seen this from one side of the political aisle. And I follow a lot of different folks on social media from left and right and all over the political spectrum. But you only see this from leftist journalists. The whole, my four-year-old came up to me and asked me why we were returning to a status similar to Weimar Republic Germany under the Trump administration. (laughs) And it's like, 
I'm pretty sure your four-year-old did. And have you seen this? I'm not. I mean, for people oh, that yeah. think I'm, I'm really, I'm exaggerating just a little bit. It, it's the woke children effect is something that you see with people all the time. It's like, can't you leave your kids out of your political discussions? And when I say kids, I don't mean you know your you know young people that are like 18. I'm talking about five-year-olds. No, you're right. That's a whole. That's a very common thing, and you'll see it on social media. And I was actually laughing about this because on the same day I saw the very serious article about how Taylor Swift is emblematic of the Trump era, um, I played her new song for my children, and I said, oh, guys, you know, Taylor Swift has this new song out. It's not that great. I'm going to play it for you. So I played it for them. They listened sort of rapped, and for those who haven't heard the song, there's this sort of absurd moment where she says in a very dramatic voice, she says, I'm sorry. The old Taylor can't come to the phone right now. She's dead. Why? I didn't know that. I'm she, just kidding. Sorry. She's dead. <laughs> and my boys just started, they laughed for about 10 minutes and went home and all declared that they were going to write her a fan letter just based on that, uh, <laughs> based on that line in the song. And that is the appropriate response to Taylor Swift, right? Um, instead of, you know, hemming and hawing about her political views. And another example I used in my column, speaking of children, again, is a magazine that is, you know, its target audience is probably 12-year-olds, is Teen Vogue, which is this publication that has morphed from, you know, a simple young people's fashion magazine to a rage pamphlet. There are these terrifying articles that you'll see in Teen Vogue, which has suddenly decided it's a political publication like everything else in the world. One was talking about how women are mad all the time, walking around like time bombs ready to explode. Can you imagine your poor little 11-year-old <laughs> thinking she's going to get some makeup tips? And she's opening Teen Vogue, and all of a sudden, you know, all bets are off. It's terrifying. We're speaking to Heather Wilhelm. She is a National Review columnist, senior contributor to The Federalist. Uh, Heather, you know, the, the Antifa group is possibly going to be listed as, or people are talking about listing it as a gang, which, you know, you're not going to get them listed as domestic terrorists, I don't think, because of the hurdles that that would have to get over at the federal level. And uh, But but to get them listed as a gang, what do you think about that? Because then you have p- police task force that come to bear. There's different laws that come into effect depending on the state. I think that's interesting. Well, I think the whole idea of Antifa is interesting, right? I mean, that's, kinda... that's one way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and again, I, I, I feel like in today's politics, especially with the Internet, with social media, with, you know, there's this new networking capability that allows crazy people to get together and, you know, make these public events to, you know, get violent. And I think people get and, and my thoughts on this, are I think people get really worked up on the Internet in these fake worlds. And I think Antifa is a great example of this. Um, and it almost gets out of control. I mean, I think this is a lot of these are a lot of people who are just clueless young people, right, who get, you know, roped into this. Um, they need a cause. And, uh, you know, but again, Heather's, I, I mean, can I can I just yeah. push back on this a little bit? Is, is that yeah. minimizing, though, a, a, a movement that exists in a whole bunch of different cities, uh, mm-hmm. has attacked people? And maybe you could say, well, yeah, Buck, that's all that all comes with being weirdos who think that you're fighting a revolutionary struggle against the state right. when your right. parents are like picking you up at the end of the day, you know, in their in their, uh, in their SUV. Uh, but there is an ideological sympathy in the media for this movement, right? Yeah. They're not treated as derelicts and clowns. 
Yes, and that's exactly that's that's a, that's a fantastic point. I think they should be treated as derelicts and clowns, and instead, you see the media taking them very seriously and taking their cause very seriously, right? And that's why we get the messes that we have and say Berkeley, right? I mean, this is a group that should be written off as as an unserious clown show, but instead, you're you're right. There's this uh, gravitas that's added to it uh, by certain commentators um, and. I, the gang, I, you know, how to deal with Antifa. How, how should we just tell me that? Forget about the gang thing or not, because that's just I mean, that's not I don't think it's going to go anywhere. I just thought it was an interesting thought. But how yeah. to deal with Antifa, Heather Wilhelm style. <laughs> You're a mom, well, so I feel like you want to give them a timeout, right? Because <laughs> I think we might have to escalate a little bit from the timeout. It's, a, you know, when they start punching people and Good point. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I mean, you have the right to peacefully demonstrate. You have the right of assembly. You have the right of free speech. You know, I mean, these are all freedoms that are guaranteed in America. But, you know, when you start punching people and gassing people and attacking cops, it turns into an entirely different program. Right. And, and that's true for demonstrators of any political stripe. So, uh, you know, I mean, I think I respect the right of free speech, but I also think, I, you know, if you're out there like they did in Berkeley, just wreaking havoc on the streets, I mean, they should be arrested. That's, you know. All right. And, and they shouldn't. And well, and nobody sh- and, and you shouldn't have reporters apologizing for you either. OK, you know, la- is- last last one real quick, Heather, uh, the, the yeah. latest Taylor the, or the first of Taylor Swift's new songs, the, the single that came out. Is it catchy and amazing or is it kind of awful and derivative? <laughs> well, you know, it's blowing up the charts. So if I say it's awful and derivative, I'm obviously outnumbered. Well, it's um, okay. Ty- Tyrone in here just gave me the thumbs down. So he said, no, no, thumbs down. <laughs> he's like, he's like, look what, look what T-Swift made me do. Thumbs down. Heather Wilhelm, everybody of Nash Review. Check out her latest, The Death of Fun as we know it. Heather, thank you so much for joining. Oh, thank you. Hey, Team Buck Sexton, back here with you now. How many of you have heard about the fact that there's currently a sitting U.S. senator who is undergoing a criminal trial, a felony criminal corruption trial? If the answer to that is very few, I can't say I'm even the least bit surprised. In fact, Bob Menendez, a Democrat senator from New Jersey, hasn't been much covered at all in the media. They don't feel the need to talk about this corruption trial. Now, just if if you don't mind, compare the corruption trial coverage of another New Jersey politician, whether you like him or not, Chris Christie. Good. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you all very much. And I'm sorry for the idiot over there. Yeah, Chris Christie. Uh, compare the coverage of the Bridgegate scandal which ended in no Chris, no charges against Chris Christie whatsoever, not even charges. Compare the, I mean, Rachel Maddow, and I, I do not exaggerate, I believe called it the most delicious political scandal of, of her lifetime or something like that. You could not have hyperbole, uh, well, there was no such thing as hyperbole when you're talking about New Jersey and Bridgegate and Chris Christie and oh, all the things that he was doing there. Because he's a Republican. And in fact, he was a Republican presidential candidate and they thought that they had him. So that was a wall to wall coverage story. And people were saying all kinds of crazy stuff. They even had some journalists who were musing out loud that maybe there should be murder charges considered against Chris Christie because 
the traffic jam at a bridge that he ended up having nothing to do with uh, could have stopped an EMS vehicle from getting to a hospital. I mean, the stuff that people were saying was completely bonkers. And yet, here we have Menendez. And I've got to go to a British tabloid to see a major Menendez story. I mean, there's some other places covering it, to be sure, but... Here's what the Daily Mail writes about this. Senator Bob Menendez's corruption trial kicks off with tales of international jet setting, $1,500 night hotel rooms, and alleged affairs with models and actresses. Beyond the tabloid angles, uh, this week's corruption trial of U.S. Senator Bob Menendez and a wealthy friend promises to put the very business of governing under a microscope and could eventually lead to a Republican taking over his seat in the deeply divided Senate. Uh, so this is all about this, this Florida ophthalmologist, Solomon Melgan, Dr. Solomon Melgan, and his relationship with Menendez. Uh, so they're charged with, here, let me give you a little more, they're charged with a conspiracy in which prosecutors say Menendez lobbied for Melgan's business interests in exchange for political donations and gifts that included luxury vacations, flights on Melgan's plane, and stays at his private villa in an exclusive Dominican Republic resort frequented by celebrities, including Beyonce and Jay-Z. The indictment also alleges Menendez pressured State Department officials to give visas to three young women described as Melgan's girlfriends. Both men, Menendez and Melgan, have pleaded not guilty and deny the allegations. This is quite a story, isn't it? A, a sitting U.S. senator. I mean, the, the, the Senate seat possibly in the balance. You have a sitting U.S. senator who is up for criminal conspiracy charges and involving what would be, if proved in a court of law, clear quid pro quo corruption, uh, corruption violations, which that's always the big issue in these corruption trials is was there something done for something given keep in mind my friends that democrat federal prosecutors because most federal prosecutors unfortunately are democrats went after former virginia governor bob mcdonnell and his wife on a on corruption charges that could have sent them away for 11 years to federal prison had to be overturned their conviction by the supreme court but they went after them and there was no official favor done. They could not find an official. It was just this guy gave nice gifts to McDonald and gave gifts to his wife and hung out with them. If hanging out with somebody is now a crime, if they're in a political office or their wife even, I mean, it was so beyond the pale. And I'm not saying it wasn't sleazy. It was gross. But it was a political question, not a criminal legal question. The voters should have said, look, this guy's being sleazy. He's with this businessman. His wife is you know, getting stuff and I don't like the way this looks. That doesn't mean you send somebody to prison for a decade. It was insane. Here we have, now that was Bob McDonald, former Virginia governor, and at one time mentioned as a presidential candidate. Now we've got Menendez. And what would have to be under any other situation, a juicy political story that would be getting a ton of coverage. And yet here I sit and I scroll to the very bottom of like CNN.com, for example, and everything you should know about Menendez's trial is just above an ad for will blood test be game changer for Alzheimer's disease and clues for U.S. in Australia's bad flu season. 
Um, It's not exactly a major news item, is it? It is below uh, Broncos cut three-time pro bowler. It is way below that. It is below dad goes viral after sitting next to singer. I mean, this is like a a page C-17 news item at CNN. And you got to think, well, hold on a second. How is this not a more important story? If nothing else. If the if the lurid details about favors for girlfriends and jet setting and all that doesn't get anyone's attention for a sitting U.S. senator, and I think the allegation is that seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars of donations were directed to Menendez by Melgan. Uh, but if that's not enough, there is a U.S. Senate seat that sits in the balance here that could be up for grabs if Menendez is found guilty, which could have an enormous impact on Trump administration agenda, on the Republican Senate's agenda, and on everything that the Republican Party, that the GOP is trying to get done here. Keep in mind that the skinny repeal of Obamacare failed by one vote. And if you want to fast forward a little bit before that, uh, were it not for a uh, an unethical and trumped-up corruption charge of a Republican, Ted Stevens... Uh, Republican from Alaska. If it were not for that, you would not have had an open Senate seat that was necessary and that the de- necessary for the passage of Obamacare. Remember, Democrats got that Ted Stevens Senate seat. So one Senate seat here and one Senate seat there can make an enormous difference to the future of the country. This is a story. I mean, this is a longtime powerful Democrat senator, and. Nothing really from the media. I mean, very, very scant coverage of this issue. And in case you were thinking, well, hold on a second. Uh, hold on a second, Buck. There, there's got to be, you know, I'm looking on Politico's site right now. Um, wh- where is, let me see. Where is, yeah, prosecutors challenge jury instructions. I mean, it is way down the list of stories. And that's for Politico, which is all about politics in D.C., If you thought that I was just imagining this, the New York Times uh, and Kellyanne Conway tweeted out the Daily Caller's piece on this and then was challenged by all these reporters. The New York Times, in an initial 1,300-word piece on the Menendez trial, which I'm not saying they're not writing about it. I'm just saying it's not prominently displayed. There's not a ferocity of interest around the story with the media, I think, for very obvious reasons. But... She initially retweeted this Daily Caller piece on how there was a 1,300-word write-up of the Menendez, which is, which is lengthy, of the Menendez trial. And not once, not once in the piece did it initially mention that, that Bob Menendez, senator from New Jersey, is a Democrat. How, how is that possible? I mean, really give it... Now, I should note that the New York Times did insert it later on, I think it was in the fifth line. They changed it. But there was this initial outcry of, oh, look at how dumb these Republicans are, these conservatives out there saying that they didn't, saying that the New York Times didn't even note what the party affiliation of this individual, uh, of, this, of this U.S. senator was. And the truth is they didn't. Now, you can say that that's an oversight, but wow, that's quite an oversight. Or... You could say that it was just an ideological bias playing, its, playing itself out in print. 
that they just didn't think it was important that Menendez is a Democrat for whatever reason. They're not hiding it, but it's so sloppy it begs the question. Only zealotry, I mean, only deep ideological conviction at a place like the New York Times, I think, would make them so sloppy. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut team. Buck Sexton here. I've told you a little bit before about my time at Amherst College, and I still draw upon it. And in particular, I have some experience and knowledge of the women's colleges uh, that are around Amherst College. As a, as a visitor, I it may not shock you to hear, spent a fair amount of time uh, on the Smith College and Holyoke College campuses when I was a student be- at Amherst because, you know, there were a lot of ladies there. And I thought that that might be uh, what, what I think you could consider favorable odds. So I, you know, spent time over there and I got to know a bit of what it was like on those campuses. In fact, I I even uh, dated a Smithy for a time. And I can tell you that the hostility to XY chromosome folks uh, was pretty widespread. And the anti-male attitude that was prevalent on the campus was really uh, widespread. It wasn't always completely in your face, but it was definitely there. I mean, they required male visitors to sign in with a state ID, like a driver's license, as though we were, you know, convicts visiting family members or something. I mean, it was really off-putting at times. And this was back in the early 2000s. I mean, I don't even know what it's like now. Um, But I'm getting a sense of what these schools are up to. Here's a story from just over the weekend, courtesy of The Washington Post. Until last year, Ninotska Love would have been barred from attending Wellesley College. She's an accomplished student who has persevered through hardship, but under long-standing rules, the college would have rejected her. Now the rules have changed. This week, Love will become one of the first transgender women to attend Wellesley. And here is a quote from the individual in the piece. For me to be accepted to one of the best colleges for women in the nation, it is a big validation of the person that I have become. At first, I couldn't believe it, said Love, who was born in Ecuador but fled to the U.S. in 2009. I'm so thankful to be here. I just want to take a step back and take a moment here to say to you all across the country, what this article is really saying, because it's a lot of celebration, trans rights, breaking barriers, glass ceilings and milestones and, you know, all that stuff. Men can now go to all women's colleges. That's what they're saying, which makes you question how exactly is an all women's college still an all women's college now? And also, how does sexual preference maybe factor into this because it is my understanding and I cannot claim to be an expert on the subject that trans men men who believe they are women or is it trans women whatever men who are trans to women uh, can still be attracted to women so they may be heterosexual even if they are in fact themselves of the belief that they are women I think that is the case which means now that you would be Uh, in a situation where you have a male who's attracted to females living, a biological male, which is the same thing, but I repeat myself, living in uh, in a dormitory with women to whom he is sexually attracted, which is, is 
I mean, that's already happening, right? Men are living in dorms with women and everything. But why is it an all-women's college then? What's the purpose of it being an all-women's college? It doesn't really make any sense, does it? If it's not, in fact, just for women, then why does an all-women's college exist? And it should be noted that this is now common at a lot of schools. In fact, they talk to um, the director of the Stonewall Center at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, the uh, state school that is down the street from the small college that I went to. And this person said, I think it's a step forward, one that's long overdue. If they say they're women, then saying that they can't attend is denying their identities and marginalizing them. Um, I, I start to get into a place where I've always had a, a high level of reading comprehension and I've always loved language. And But some of this stuff just doesn't make sense. I literally sit around thinking, what are they trying to say here? What are these words that they're stringing together supposed to mean? And as I got deeper into this article, and I should note that this is true at a lot of the women's colleges. Some of you listening probably attended women's colleges, right? A lot of them now take this same posture. Uh, there are a whole bunch of schools across the country, Smith and Holyoke among them, that have let in trans students, but they won't track it. They won't tell anybody how many because they don't want to get into, they say, a privacy concern uh, issue here. But I was reading deeper into this piece, and, and I realized that what they have the experts saying now, this is a quote, or, or, well, if they say that they're women, I told you, that then they're marginalized if we don't treat them as women. Um, but then they wrote the following... Leaders at some schools counter that women's colleges were founded to educate those who have been marginalized because of their gender. And they quote one of these experts. That's always been the historic role of women's colleges. The definition of gender and gender identity has broadened, and yet it's still very much that mission. So what they're saying, I mean, I'm trying to translate, I'm doing progressive translation, right? This is what, it's almost like taking one language and having to write it out in another. What they're saying, is, I mean, they're using English words, but they're not using concepts that are based in the rational world. Uh, they're saying that women's colleges are now for the, quote, gender marginalized, which makes me want to ask the obvious question. At what point do we just start saying that these are colleges for the gender marginalized instead of women's colleges? And at what point do feminists who have female as a part of the word, right? Feminine, female. I mean, the basis for the, the root of the word is the same. At what point do feminists say, you know what? We're not going to give over our institutions in part. And I'm not saying this is right, but how can you be a radical feminist who says that women should, because they are marginalized in education, which the radical, you know, feminist uh, Marxist types all believe, um, when do they say that they are not, in fact, going to take this position of allowing in transgender, uh, transgender men? You know, I just wonder at what point, I just wonder when they'll cross over and they'll decide that, you know, there's no longer an alliance at work here. Because in the meantime, I sit around thinking to myself, this is just madness right this is this strikes me as crazy well i mean i think it is crazy yeah women's colleges are now for the gender marginalized also this person uh this who's referred to as female all the time 
Look, I will I will stay on the referring to people as their gender, their biological gender, as long as I can until I am forced as a matter of law uh, and workplace law not to, which I don't even know. I might already it might already be a thing that's happening, but I'm trying to do political commentary here. But no surprise in this Washington Post piece. They also note that, quote, love is uh, considering a major in women's and gender studies and hopes to become a civil rights lawyer for LGBT students and immigrants. It's a goal shaped by her own past. Love says she illegally entered Texas from Mexico before being granted asylum because of her persecution in Ecuador. Let me unpack that one for you. So here you have a man enrolling in a women's college in Massachusetts and a competitive women's college that's receiving taxpayer dollars to subsidize it. This is a person who fled because of gender identity from his country of origin, came to the U.S. illegally. I'm sure the gender identity card was very helpful in getting admission to this university where he is an illegal immigrant. You you would have to struggle to make this stuff up. And people wouldn't believe you if you were saying that this is what was happening in the country in academia right now if you weren't reading it on the front pages of newspapers. So there you have it, my friends. Women's colleges are no longer for women. They are for the, quote, gender marginalized. I try to have a life beyond just doing media all the time, although uh, some of you who follow a lot of my work may be thinking, how is he on radio and TV at the same time? He must not have a life because he must be preparing for radio and doing TV and writing and doing other things all throughout the day. How can Molly stand him? Why would anyone deal with this? Those are all fair and valid questions. But I, I try to get out there and do things beyond just the usual uh, deep dives into all things news cycle and uh, analysis of politics and national security and, you know, all that stuff. I try to have life experience as well. So I I went, uh, it was very fortunate. I got some last minute tickets uh, given to me uh, by Miss Molly um, and her family, uh, given to us to go see the U.S. Open last night. And I went to see it. Now, this is not a a tennis-specific discussion. I'm not going to sit here and say, well, you know, I think that uh, clearly Federer versus Nadal is the best possible final matchup. You know, I know a lot of you with tennis, you just don't want to hear it. That's not what I want to talk to you about. Uh, Although I'm going to use tennis as a means of achieving a, well, discussing something, a life lesson of sorts that I found uh, particularly interesting and worthwhile so I'm there last night and you know sure enough I'm I'm watching Roger Federer play and we had amazing seats and I'm not used to having good seats to anything I'm I'm a nosebleed section guy Uh, but I I have amazing seats I'm there with Molly it's an absolutely gorgeous night and we are in Queens New York at at the tennis stadium this huge stadium and we're eight rows from this incredible match and you have one of the greatest tennis players of all time. A lot of people would say the greatest tennis player of all time, squaring off against uh, a very well-regarded, highly ranked, but kind of journeyman player from Germany named uh, Cole Schreiber. And the reason I'm telling you about this is because, you know, at this level, because I think that we can all draw some some inspiration from this maybe or or maybe at least put things into perspective at this level the round of 16 at the u.s open 
these people are absolutely incredible, right? This is the best of the best of the best. And in the case of one of these guys, Roger Federer, one of the best tennis players who ever lived. Now, this is not about tennis. So don't, uh, some of you are like, ah, why? This is not about tennis, per se. This is a lesson through tennis. But I'm watching at this very high level. And after the match, Molly turned to me and she goes, you know, what, what do you think of, 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 the, uh, of the guy that Roger beat? How do you think he played? And it occurred to me that I didn't even remember the guy's name. Now, you could say that that's because Buck is getting old and he's forgetful now. Okay, fine. That may be the case. But here I am watching people at the peak of their profession uh, in this incredibly, uh, you know, electric atmosphere uh, of being in a major, one of the four major tournaments. And this other guy, I didn't remember him, and he played well, but it, it, he got absolutely trounced, right? It was never a doubt that he was going to lose to Roger Federer, who's one of the greatest that ever lived. And this makes me think about how we all can do only what we can do. This player, Cole Schreiber, whose name I forgot, uh, has spent his entire life, probably since he was about five or six years old, playing tennis. And that's at this level of competition, it's not possible to be competitive really without having been uh, attached to a tennis racket from a very young age. And I know this is true of a lot of this is true of professional football players, baseball players. They, they grow up in the sport, uh, and this is such a huge part of their life for as long as they can remember. Uh, but this guy grew up, and he's just so many thousands of hours in the tennis court. And there were periods in his life where I'm sure in Germany he was, he's number th- he was in the top 100 in the world. He's ranked 30th in this tournament. But I'm sure there have been periods in this guy's life when this tennis player whose name I can barely even remember, and I'm somebody who likes tennis, when he was considered a superstar, when he was a really big deal. He probably played in the European junior professional circuit, and and people thought that he was the next big thing, and he had coaches and sponsors and people signing on. But then he shows up year in and year out to these tournaments and does everything that he can, puts it all on the line, and he loses time and time again to people who are just honestly more gifted at this sport of tennis, just have been given more naturally because to outwork the other people at this level, it's almost inconceivable. Uh, They're all working so hard, have so much time on the court, physical trainers, mental trainers, coaching staffs. This is what they do. They live, eat, sleep, and breathe tennis. True of a lot of other professional sports too. So whatever your professional sport of choice is, you can just insert that into this into this, uh, I don't know if we call it a parable, but into some buck thoughts here. And I just thought this guy got his butt kicked in front of, well, everyone all over the world watching the U.S. Open, but on this stadium court. And I know that there's the other, there's the alternative perspective here of he's probably making a few million dollars a year. He, you know, he's out there doing this, and he's even at a very high level. There are a lot of other people. There are guys ranked three or 400 in the world. You know, what's that like? And I'm telling you this because I was thinking, you know what, though? I bet that if you sat down and talked to this guy, Cole Schreiber, first name I can't even remember, so. And I watched him for two hours, almost three hours last night playing tennis. Uh, But if, if, if you sat down and talked to him, 
which you'd probably have to do like a little bit of this because he's a German and he doesn't speak the English perfectly, I'm sure. Yeah, he's like the tennis. But if you were able to ask and he said, would you, would you change anything? I, I would bet, not, I don't know this for a fact, I'd bet he'd probably say no. That this is what he was meant to do, this is what he wanted to do. You see, I'm trying to, more and more as I gain wisdom and years here, look at what we, what we all do in our day-to-day lives, not as a pathway to certain achievements, but as processes that we should embrace. That you're doing what you should, that you should pick things where you're doing what you should be doing because you love doing it. And hopefully success comes. And, you know, we're all told as kids that if you work hard enough and you play by the rules, and now I know it sounds like, if you work hard enough and play by the rules, you get ahead in the economy. I'm not not making an Obama fairness doctrine talk here, um, or the fairness doctrine is about radio. You know what I mean? I'm I'm not going Marxist on you all of a sudden here with, you know, work hard, play ahead, play by the rules. Uh, but we're told that if you if you try hard enough, if you you know if you want to be a professional athlete, if you work out enough in the gym, if you are dedicated enough, you know you'll achieve your dreams. And that's not true. There are some people who won't. There are some people who will never be number one. There are some people who will never be number one thousand. But I think part of success is understanding that that's okay. That it's not about the end process. It's about or at the end state, it's about enjoying the process. You know, it's, and this is all, I suppose, summarized in classic, uh, like I'm going to run off on a beach somewhere with a with a pina colada in hand and be like, dude, it's not about, it's not about the destination, it's the journey. But it's true, it is, it has to be not about the destination, it has to be the journey with our careers, with our personal lives, uh, because you have no guaranteed outcome. It doesn't, it doesn't guarantee anything if you work really hard. It doesn't guarantee, yeah, you should do that. And of course, that's a part of it. And that's a precondition. It's necessary. But for a lot of us, and whatever it is we do, and if it's being a mom or a dad or a, a fireman or a school teacher or a small business owner, uh, a truck driver, wh- whatever it is you do, you have the choice every day about how you do it and how you treat the people around you. And that's really it. You can put your heart and soul into it. You can be the best mom or dad you can possibly be. You can be the best truck driver, the best brain surgeon, the best you name it you can possibly be. And that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be the best. But being as good at something as you can be, being that guy who's ranked number 30 or number 100 in the world, who goes out there time and time again to get his butt kicked by the number one, the number five, by one of the greatest of all time in tennis in Roger Federer, there's honor in that. There's integrity in that. There's joy, and I could even say there's love in it because if it's really what you're meant to do and if you really care about it, even if you don't win, you have a chance to win every single day. And I know this is where I sound like a coach, and I was a great soccer coach for one season, but it really is true. I was thinking about it last night. So my little German friend, Cole Schreiber, um, it's all right, my man. You're doing what you should be doing, even if you get your butt kicked sometimes. Hope you uh, had a fantastic Labor Day weekend. I trust that you got some relaxation time in, hopefully. And uh, I can tell you that I made Brussels sprouts with yogurt, mint sauce, and a fig reduction drizzle. That went over quite well with uh, the folks. 
also just on a whim decided to go super frou-frou and do a bit of charred cauliflower with roasted grapes. I know it's like I'm it's like I'm barely even American at this point, right? My dad was in charge of all the meat. So so he he was, you know, he he was getting his man cooking on and I'm over there with my charred uh Brussels sprouts and my roasted cauliflower. Uh so they were both delicious though, I can tell you. I mean, maybe maybe my cuisine is slightly commie, but the food overall uh was delicious over the course of the weekend. I also made everyone uh, my now signature uh, hot sauce goat cheese scrambled egg sandwich. Merveilleux, monsieur. It was parfait. Uh, it was so, so yummy. So I had some great food this weekend. I also learned something, which, you know, it's an important thing for uh, folks to constantly be in the process of learning new things. I think it is really critical for all of us to feel like we are growing and expanding our horizons. And I'm, I'm young enough, I think, that I can keep up with what pop culture is doing about 20% of the time, maybe. But I got a little lesson in how, you know, there is a generation or two below me now, and they're, they're calling the shots on what's cool. And I'm sometimes about as, as hip as, uh, in my generation, you know, the, the, the mom or the dad was who came over and was like, hey, I made you guys some snacks. They're P-H-A-T fat. You know, I, I th- that's can happen to me sometimes, too. So over the I've been thinking for a while among my favorite activities is to lie down uh, in couch potato style and watch numerous episodes in a row of my favorite show. Binge watch is what is what the kids call it. And so I, I like binge-watching Netflix. I haven't been to a movie theater. and I, don't, I can't even remember the last movie I saw in a theater. It's been so long. But I do enjoy watching shows, and uh, I'm in the process of trying to find a really good one these days. I've got a few things that are keeping me... I watch a little bit of the show Ballers. I've been watch, I need to finish Bloodline on Netflix. There are a few shows. But as there was a rainy... Uh, where I was, at least, was rainy on Sunday over the weekend... I had a, a stay-in day, of course, a lot of reading, reading my history books, uh, getting prepared to perhaps do a special on Buck Sexton with America Now about the Siege of Malta, one of the most important sieges of all history. Probably haven't even heard much about it in school, I would guess. Uh, but I get ahead of myself. So I was doing some reading and thinking that I would also watch some shows. And so I was going around, I'm saying, you know what I'm going to do today? And I swear, I really didn't. I really didn't know. Okay, I really had no idea. I just this was what I, I figured that when people say, "Hey," because I've seen the memes, you know, that are out there. I I, I pick up on the memes. The memes are phat fat. Um, so, you know, I, I've seen the memes about Netflix and chill, and I thought that that meant to literally watch Netflix and chill, like to watch shows that you like. Maybe you're going to watch How I Met Your Mother reruns for a few hours and you're going to order in Thai food and you're not going to worry about an impending nuclear standoff with North Korea or, or some such thing. You're not going to be diving deep into the political philosophy of Antifa. They say they're anti-fascist, but they're actually fascist. This is the great irony. But no, no, no. I just wanted to Netflix and chill. 
or so I thought. Ms. Molly, my girlfriend, who is uh, a few years younger than me, uh, and so is cool, and, and is just cool in general, but also is cooler because she, you know, knows knows like what is in style and what what people say these days who are below the age of thirty. Um, and and she's like, you know, you, you may not want to, you may not want to say that. And I'm like, no, like I'm just gonna Tallulah and I we're just gonna Netflix and chill today, referring to my parents' French bulldog. And I, you know, I'm saying this thinking that I'm going to watch a show with the dog, you know, on the couch, and we're just going to, you know, I'm going to hang out. And and sure enough, I found out I did not know this, and it was much to my much to my chagrin uh, that it, that as the kids say it these days, Netflix and chill is a euphemism for having relations of a carnal nature. I didn't know this. I thought Netflix and chill actually meant to watch Netflix and chill. But it turns out that, no, when somebody texts somebody else and says they are looking for Netflix and chill, it has absolutely uh, very little to do with the, the completely acceptable activities of watching uh, television on demand and being uh, a, a layabout, um, hanging around. Layabout is probably not even the best term I could have used here, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, you know, you, you got to be careful with acronyms, I've found out. Uh, there are some acronyms that you see popping up a lot in the social media, and if you don't know what they are and you toss them around, you may use it properly but are not aware of the profane derivation. So, like, if I were to tell everybody that I am... Uh, I, I'm I'm uh, loving this show is is cool AF. Um, that does not mean amazingly fortitudinous. Uh, I'm just you'd have to Google that one. I'm learning. I'm learning. Okay, but Netflix and chill. I've been walking around like an imbecile saying it, thinking that it it meant what it says, but it actually means something else. So I'm the good news is this show forces me to to get a little more in touch with the pop culture. Please do download the show, my friends. Uh, Buck Sexton uh, with America Now on iTunes is one way to go. Uh, if you haven't already, if you don't mind, please leave a review there. That really does help us out in the rankings. It means that more people will find out about the show. Also, BuckSexton.com slash store. A lot of members of the Sexton family were hanging out and rocking their Team Buck gear over the weekend. So we got to do some of that. Uh, which is great, and uh, I'm, uh, of course, going to be soon posting on social media some Team Buck gear photos. If you're not so much into the gear, into the the gear that's wearable, you can get a mug. We have Team Buck mugs, and are always working on other uh, items to be offering up as well. So uh, we're going to have a very busy week here in the Freedom Hut. I'm going to be coming to you from Los Angeles, Freedom Hut, Los Angeles, on Thursday. So that'll be exciting. And until tomorrow, where I will be in New York, of course, with you, let me just say that uh, it's good to be back to you. Missed you all. Excited to get some more time with you in the Freedom Hut. Until then, as always, no matter what comes your way, Shields High.